0: Welcome to Better Than Nothing. What you are about to hear is just me being able to speak with some amazing people that come from many walks of life. Here at the Farm Progress Show 2022, it's in Boone, Iowa this year, and I'm walking down one of the aisles of seven miles of road. The crowd is not big, but it's comfortable, and I love that. It's the second day of the show. The weather has been really good these last two days of August, and looks like tomorrow, the 1st of September, will be the same so i am going through the show finding people that are interesting finding products that are unusual finding out what's going on in agriculture so i hope for the next half hour as i bounce around the farm progress show you stay with me ron guys here from corteva what are you doing nowadays we've known each other for a long time
1: we have ken um, i'm now the market development specialist for the northern half of iowa which is a fancy way to say maybe the more of the chemical agronomist that supports the uh, the, the chemical business, um, and I also work with our seed partners on uh, on chemical issues and items that they may have. Are you based in Des Moines? <laughs> no, I'm based uh, just outside of Sioux City, Iowa, and I know that's not real centralized. to cover the northern half of Iowa, but uh, you know when you're an empty nester, you can kind of move around and spend a night or two out once in a while. It works. Well, I out. was going to say, I bet you cover the state from border to border if you need to. Yeah, I I do. Uh, In fact, uh, Monday I started Sioux City and uh, went up to north central Iowa to do some test plots and then went to Dyersville to do some test plots and then ended up in Ames. Tell me what you have seen across that northern half of the state. Bigger observation that I have is the west to east, you know, the have-nots to the haves. It's all about rain. Uh, You get over there by the Sioux City area and uh, Ken, we had rain in 2019 and we haven't had a whole lot since then. It's been hand-to-mouth, and it's hand-to-mouth again. There's, a, there's been some silage being chopped um, even into mid-July, uh, or I'm sorry, late July, early August. And that's just un, almost unprecedented. In 2012, we had the same scenario. And then as you go east, well, you couldn't ask for better conditions. I mean, just uh, beautiful corn over there at Dyersville that I was looking at.
0: Once it started raining in our part of the state, it kept raining. But I know western areas. So you're saying that chopping is going on
1: because they didn't think it was going to make enough grain to be worth it. That's exactly right. I mean, and they had a use for the silage. You get over in Sioux Center and, you know, a lot of cattle. Uh, So we can use that. But, you know, if the corn's not going to make much, let's get it while it's still green before it all dries down. Ron, what about soybeans? Same story, different story? A little bit different because, Ken, soybeans, if they get August rain, you know, they could be on the brink of death on July 31st, get a nice August rain, and, still make seventy bushels over in some of those same areas that are struggling. And I'm not predicting seventy-bushel beans, Ken, but uh, there's still, I think, a pretty good chance because we had some pretty good August moisture and, you know, got away from those hundred-degree temperatures more in favor of the eighty-fives and such. A question
0: to your specialty area. If you were to say in the last five to ten years what farmers have done to augment their crop production through the season, What applications have they made? What changes have they made that
1: continue to show these expanding yields? I'm going I'm to give a lot of credit to our seed partners by developing really good genetics, especially genetics, and, and this is really showing this year, uh, genetics that are uh, capable of, of handling dry conditions, and then also on the eastern part of the state, uh, genetics that are much more adapted handling the disease problems due to all the extra moisture and tar spot and things, uh, that that those are making some big advancements but another uh, lingering problem is weed control and clearly the farmers that have a good integrated plan of pre-emerge herbicides you know follow that up with timely post-emerge herbicides uh, they're being successful in the weed management and you know weeds take moisture and when moisture is extremely valuable uh, you know, that's making a big difference
0: I have been talking to some of these weed specialists from the universities, and I mean these guys are highly educated and they really know their industry and they seem to be stumped on how to really have any singular method of controlling these weeds to the point that if you talk to them very long they'll start talking about a weed destructor that mounts behind your combine. Well that's not their their area. You know their area has always been chemicals and rotation and other things and they said no that
1: weed destructor actually does a pretty good job okay but remember part of what you just said was a singular method that's where our problem was ken when you and i grew up we would plant our crop we would spray our crop we'd go dig it if anybody even remembers what that is we'd cultivate it and then we would spend august walking our crop pulling the weeds out by hand how do we manage our weeds today chemistry just chemistry yeah we got multiple modes of action and we need to use multiple modes because if we're going with the singular method of chemistry as our one and only answer we've got to do that right or we're going to go backwards so i like the notion of things like these weed crushers we're entering into the field of biologicals now i i don't have we don't have a weed control biological yet but you know we're, we're we're working towards that. We're we're wanting and hoping to find those and, and we need that to mix things up. Mix things up because chemistry 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 is only going to continue to give us the results that we've been having and most farmers would say we're going backwards. That's called insanity, I believe somewhere. If you do the same thing over and over again you expect different results. <laughs> That's precisely right, Ken. So, let's kind of stop. I'm not going to say stop doing that, but let's let's start integrating other things. That are, gonna, that are gonna mix this up. Overall yields across the state
0: of Iowa, do you think will be below trend line or below normal?
1: I do. I you know, followed a bit of the uh, progressive farmer uh, information and I, it's, it's exactly what I was seeing and, and, and uh, in the fields that I've been in. Uh, over to the east, I'm highly encouraged, maybe their best crop ever. Over to the west on corn, I'm not that encouraged uh, with what I'm seeing. You don't see silage choppers the first week of August and think that we've got a bumper crop out there. i um, not giving up on soybeans quite yet. I never do until the combine tells me otherwise.
0: Ron, great to talk to you. Thank you very much. Continue the good work. Thank you, Kent. It's great to see you again. Farm Progress companies put this show on and uh, I'm always surprised at the simple innovation that occurs. Out in front of their big building, they have sandboxes made for kids. And these sandboxes are full of shovels and sifters but they're full of little toy tractors. How many of us got started with our love for agriculture by emulating what our father did by taking a little toy tractor and getting in the sand, actually I preferred mud, and began to move dirt and began to farm and they're giving them that chance once again, this generation. Gentry Sorensen is with me from Iowa State University. He's a field agronomist in the northwest
2: part of the state. So I'm looking at a map of Iowa. What counties are yours? Uh, i would be uh, Buena Vista, Clay, Dickinson, Emmett, Palo Alto, Pocahontas, Kassuth, Winnebago and Hancock counties. So it'd be the north central to northwest area of the state.
0: I heard you got rain out there in 2019. That's the last time you got good rains. That's
2: true. <laughs> Yeah, you bet. Uh, The northern tiers of counties are have gotten adequate amount of rain, not really excess amount of rain, but adequate amount of rain. When we move further south and further west, uh, we get reduced amount of rainfall across across my area.
0: What's that showing? The crops doing as you think they should compared to what they should?
2: Yeah, you bet. When we when I start to look across uh, northern clay, or I'm sorry, southern clay. Southern Palo Alto, northern Pocahontas, and northern Buena Vista counties, I start to see a lot of tip back in the corn right now. Um, A little bit of reduced yield from the dry weather that we're seeing. Not seeing as much of that uh, when I move further east across my area. So it gets better the further east you go? Yes, it does, yeah. Are you going to be below
0: trend line on
2: the west, do you think, on corn? I would think it would be slightly below trend line yield, yeah, yeah. You brave
0: enough to say how the
2: soybeans will do? <laughs> um, I'm never an expert on soybeans because, as you know, uh, when you get out in the field, it, it tends to be different. So, trying to make a yield estimate on soybeans is really difficult. You bet. What's Iowa State doing working with farmers
0: right now? I know you got weed pressures. You know, you got other issues that they're fighting. What advice do you think farmers want the most today?
2: Um, a lot of farmers are. Really interested in methods of weed control. Um, I get a lot of questions about how to control water hemp. Um, so, what Iowa State's looking at and, and doing is they're working uh, with cover crops a little bit. Um, also, working on uh, methods like uh, behind us, there's a combine with a seed destructor on it. Just trying to look at other methods of controlling weeds, uh, controlling water hemp, because most farmers do have issues with uh, water hemp control in their fields.
0: Well, it certainly seems to be a big problem. It's worse to the south, it appears, in the the southern delta states, and they've got that famous Palmer amaranth down there that's big enough to be a Christmas tree.
2: Uh, Fortunately, we don't have Palmer a lot in the state of Iowa. Um, We do have it in isolated spots, so we're we're monitoring that situation and make sure it's not spreading across the state. That's correct. Well, thank you for what you guys do at
0: Iowa State to give us an independent opinion and to also do research that you can provide directly to agricultural growers.
2: Yeah, you bet. Thanks, Ken.
0: Greg Bled is with me from Kubota. Now you've seen these Kubota tractors ever since Walt Garrison. He was bigger than the tractor. Now the tractors are matching size of most of the utility tractors in the country, and. Uh, Greg, I wonder, what caused you guys to expand into agriculture as aggressively as you have?
3: So I think at Kubota, we're always looking for opportunities to serve our customers, and we found that a lot of our customers need larger machines. So we are continuing to evolve and uh, really talk to customers about their needs and meeting those needs.
0: Well, Kubota name, I suppose your surveys show that you're pretty much a household word. You've done a lot of advertising a lot of people love your machines so do you feel comfortable up against deer and other companies on offering your machines to the public
3: of course we will go up against anybody you know we are supported by 1100 dealers across the country that are trained certified in service and parts and you know we are really making our mark in the US
0: what's the uh biggest range of machines that you have now as far as tractors, two-wheel and four-wheel and two-wheel assist?
3: Yeah, so right now our largest tractor is an M7 in the state of Iowa and that goes up to about 172 horsepower.
0: 172. Yes. Is it front wheel assist?
3: It is, it is. You know, it would be a great uh, tractor for that uh, livestock producer, hay producer, you know, for a chore tractor. Right.
0: Now what about Specialty equipment, I mean, a lot of farmers are buying front end loaders that uh, they're buying uh, stuff from Bobcat that'll do about anything, bolt on the front of it. Are you matching that in some ways?
3: Yes. So with our partnership with Land Pride, um, a Kubota owned company as well, um, we have hundreds of different attachments to put on the front of all of our equipment, which we have on display here at the Farm Progress 2022.
0: Where are your tractors and your equipment generally made?
3: Obviously, we're from Japan originally, and tractors are still there, but we have made tremendous investments in the United States. And so we have plants now in Georgia and uh, down in Kansas. But we have warehouses all over the place. So Kubota is realizing that with all these supply chain issues that we need to get manufacturing back in the U.S. for U.S. based sales.
0: I guess I ought to mention you also have a turf line over here behind me and those look like pretty serious machines too.
3: Correct so our turf line is ever-growing you know um, we started out with the residential equipment and now we are going into that commercial um, turf line where you know for those landscapers that are mowing hundreds of uh, lawns.
0: Yeah. So to finish up with it are you uh, competitive with the other vehicles that are out here from other manufacturers at this, pri- at this size range?
3: Yes I think you know we we pride ourselves on our quality and our service, and um, the products will speak for themselves. But, yes, we'll go up against any, uh, any product, uh, comparable product.
0: Yeah. And you've got a lot of dealers across.
3: We do. We do. 1,100 total in the U.S. and about 28 in the state of Iowa.
0: Wonderful. Craig, thank you very much for talking. You.
3: Uh, appreciate y- your time.
0: Well here at the Farm Progress show we see a lot of farm machinery, we see a lot of vehicles that are appealing to farmers, but I'm here with uh, Jared Schwab who is a, uh, a specialist in the U.S. Army and we are standing here next to his big tool. What is that?
4: I have with me a M119er Alpha 3, it is a 105mm howitzer. So you got it behind a, a
0: four-wheeler, pretty good sized four-wheeler is this gun uh, similar to what's being used uh, any place in the world right now?
4: Uh, I would say it's similar to what a lot of countries have. It's just a normal tube artillery. It's a howitzer capable of direct fire and indirect fire. I know the M119 is used by at least the United States but it's originated in the United Kingdom.
0: Well now you look like you're in your 20's. Good looking young man, got a modified military haircut. What's the background that puts you into the military?
4: Uh, I joined when, just before my 21st birthday, four years ago. I was a sophomore at Iowa State University. Uh, I needed something different to do. I wasn't too happy with school at the time. I needed to take a break.
0: So you're still in the military now. Uh,
4: Did you get any further education or plan to? Uh, I'm still a student at Iowa State. Uh, I'm in my last semester, I'm a senior there, and uh, my major is Agricultural Studies.
0: So you stayed in school, became military. Uh, I take it went to basic training and then further training.
4: Yeah, so I did basic in the summer of 2018. Did AIT in Fort Sill right after. I was in Fort Sill all summer. It was very hot that summer. Uh, And then I just went back to the Iowa National Guard. Uh, I deployed with the Iowa National Guard in summer of 2020. I did my pre-deployment training at Fort Sill, again, I've spent all my active time at Fort Sill. And then after, uh, we did pre-deployment training for the C-RAM mission. So that's a counter rocket artillery and mortars. I was a LPWS crewman, land-based phalanx weapon system, and then I deployed to Al-Assad Air Base in Iraq. And then I did uh, BDSC there, the Baghdad Diplomatic Support Center, right by Baghdad International Airport.
0: Well, I salute you and thank you for your service, but have you ever been in a more beautiful place than Lawton, Oklahoma and Fort Sill? I mean, is that not a beautiful wonderland?
4: Oh man, Uh, the first summer I was there, it had a real air temp, my basic training graduation day of 114 degrees. My parents are from the Quad City area in Illinois, and they were uh, very shocked at how hot it was. When I was in basic training, you don't have uh, cell phones or anything, so you can't check the weather. It was just hot to me, that's all I knew. Well,
0: in Oklahoma, and I'm a native Oklahoman, we say that if the world had a rectum, it'd be right there.
4: <laughs> it, that is very accurate. Uh, it was hot. There was like a drought that summer. It was, I got there in early May, May 9th, and it was green. And then within two weeks, it turned brown. It was like a drought that yeah. whole summer. Yeah. But I went back in uh, August of 2020 for that pre-deployment training, and I showed up, and everything was green still. It was actually somewhat pleasant. And then there was an ice storm that went through in like October. And it was kind of neat to drive around in that. Well,
0: it's a different part of the world, but uh, for those of us from that area, we just find it amazing that when the military comes in there and they shoot holes in the ground, it actually improves the land.
4: <laughs> I can definitely see that. I, I've all, they always told us of that one story of uh, someone landing around in like the Walmart parking lot there. There was a mistake that happened. That was years and years ago. But uh, we always get told, to make sure you know you yeah. shoot where your coordinates yeah. say you're supposed to. Well, Specialist Swab,
0: what's your plan for the future?
4: Uh, I graduate this uh, semester, so uh, I want to try to get a job with the USDA doing conservation. Now, will
0: you continue to do more military that is required of you now?
4: I have a roughly a year and a half left on my contract. I'm supposed to be pending sergeant here soon. I have, uh, so I have my basic leaders course coming up in January that I'm looking forward to and trying to get ready for
0: Well, I think you stated well the opportunities of military, granted you have gone to service, but that serving your country is a positive thing, and you're back and you've almost finished your degree, and serving your country, I really can't think of a better base to run for president of the United States.
4: Oh, I don't think I'm that special. I kind of just like to do my work. I like to work with my hands a lot, so this job has provided that, and I hope to look forward to working with my hands still in the future in the civilian side. Thank you. All right, thank you for your support, sir.
0: Well, let's talk pollinators for a moment and the monarch butterfly specifically. Dr. Kelsey Fisher is with me. You're a newly minted doctor, aren't you?
5: Yes, I graduated uh, with my PhD in entomology in May of 2021 from Iowa State.
0: Where are you from? What's your background?
5: Originally, I'm from Philadelphia, um, and then I got my master's at the University of Delaware. And then I came to Iowa State for my Ph.D. and sticking around until something else comes along.
0: So what drew you into the field that you chose and now into this pollinator program?
5: So I very specifically chose Iowa State for my PhD um, because the Iowa Monarch Conservation Consortium was born here. Um, So the monarch butterfly population is in decline and we are able to know that because of the last uh, 30 years we've been able to get approximations of population size while they're overwintering in Mexico. And we've seen a very significant decline in the population size. And there's a lot of causes for this decline, but the one that we in Iowa kind of have the most control over is, is habitat. So the monarch butterflies need milkweed. So the, caterpillar, the adult butterflies lay eggs on milkweed and then the caterpillars feed on milkweed. Um, and so it's their required host plant. And with the introduction of genetically modified crops, a lot of the milkweed that was in corn and soybean fields in the surrounding areas is not here anymore. And so there was a big decline in monarch population. So what we're trying to do with the consortium is to figure out how to establish monarch habitat and other pollinator habitat um, with what's going on in agriculture now. We're not asking to take acres out of production. We just wanna see if we can um, add habitat in places that are maybe underutilized.
0: Well, I've heard this called collateral damage due to the fact that milkweed is a rather easy plant for Roundup and other herbicides to kill. Is that accurate?
5: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yes. So when we had Roundup Ready corn, it it knocked out all the milkweed. <laughs> and I've
0: never seen a farmer deliberately stomp on a monarch butterfly like they do some worms. <laughs> so they're not generally against the butterfly. But what is the what is, what is needed? Does it need to have big acreage or small acreage? What will really work to bring the monarch back?
5: So... Actually, uh, unlike a lot of other species that need big, undisturbed areas, the monarch butterfly likes little small patches of milkweed. They lay their eggs singly um, on milkweed plants, and they'll lay eggs on one or two stems in an area, and then they'll fly off and go find another area. So they try to distribute their eggs widely across the landscape, and so having small areas that create stepping stones through the landscape is actually way better than having big areas of habitat um, because the big areas go underutilized because they'll only stick around on the edges. Um, So small small areas. So underutilized corners of fields or people's backyards. um, Any little bit helps.
0: Well I have wanted to introduce pollinator habitat but I hear that up against weeds it's not competitive at least in the first couple of years. Is that true?
5: Yeah, so one of the things that we recommend is putting the area that you'd like to convert into pollinator habitat into Roundup Ready um, soy for two years. Knock down that seed bank, just kind of get everything out of there, and then after two years, then uh, plant it into pollinator habitat, and there's not as much competition with um, the other weeds that are in the seed bank.
0: Are there needs for you to do other cultivation work? hand-picking weeds or even burning in the future?
5: Within the the first year you want to mow the first two years pretty regularly to make sure that your um, native plants are establishing and the weeds are getting knocked off and then after that approximately like every three to five years you can either burn or mow and bale. How much
0: do they overseed themselves these pollinator plants?
5: Oh they do a great job so once you seed it, it it should be Fairly all right, unless it doesn't take, and then you might need to do another in a few years or so. But once you have the establishment of your plants, they're going to continue to reproduce.
0: So, Kelsey, you're saying that people who want to help the monarch butterfly, to see the monarch butterfly in the future, future generations, they just need to establish a little area. Where do you get the seed?
5: Um, if you go to the Iowa State University Monarch Butterfly website page, we have a link that takes you to the uh, Tallgrass Prairie Institute in Iowa, and it has recommendations for seed dealers in the area, um, and because we can't recommend one specifically, but so we can link you to all of them.
0: I've also heard that the, uh, Pheasants Forever program pushes this quite a bit.
5: Yes, I actually collaborate with Pheasants Forever a lot. They're, they're really great at, um, at at helping people get habitat established and maintaining it too. Now,
0: so, you're an entomologist, is your original degree? Yes, it is. How do you feel about having a president of the university who was an entomologist in her first degree?
5: It is wonderful. So Wendy, I I actually, because of entomology, I know her a little bit um, because she shows up at some of our events and things. And um, it's a really great role model to have. Uh, Being a a newly minted Ph.D. and having somebody, um, a a female entomologist in such a high level is really awesome.
0: All right. Well, no matter where you wind up, where you land, we'll look for you and uh, continuation of this Habitat program for Monarchs.
5: Thank you very much. It was nice meeting you
0: drones have definitely gotten bigger and at the Farm Progress show we've got one from uh, Guardian Agriculture that has skids on the bottom of it. It stands about five, five and a half feet tall and I'm here with the founder of the company. What's your name, sir? My name's Adam Burcu. Adam, how did you get rigged up to actually launch, so to speak, this drone?
6: So we're uh, a a bunch of um, motor and battery and uh, and liquid dynamics experts out of out of Boston, Massachusetts, and we saw a huge need. We saw in Asia and in China these these small drones really exploding in their utility, and thought that's a great idea. How can we really uh, give growers what a tool, a new tool they can use and really uh, exploit on their acres here? And we saw the limitation primarily payload, reliability, and usability, and thought we could address all of those and, and build a, a real tool for the American grower.
0: There's a Russian here who asks that you not talk about exploding drones, okay? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Tell me though the size of this thing,
6: horsepower if you will, and sure. what it's powered by. So it's an all-electric unit. It's a, uh, a lithium cobalt battery pack that we make ourselves. Unlike the smaller Chinese units, we don't switch the battery between runs. We supercharge the battery. So on a on a four-minute flight, you land, you plug in, and in about two minutes, the payload is topped off and the battery is good to go. You can take off again. Um, that's a real a real primary driver for easy ground logistics. The uh, There are four electric propulsion motors. It's and, a quadcopter. Uh, it's a quadcopter, that's right, with uh, with 63-inch propellers. And um, they're about 18 horsepower apiece, uh, giving you um, plenty of tight control and, and the horsepower you need to adjust the altitude over uneven terrain or quick turns, and and wind rejection is really important for us too. Now
0: at the back, you have the spray boom, which looks like it's about 12, 14 feet long.
6: Yeah, it's it's an 18-foot spray boom, and uh, unlike, also again, unlike some of the drones that we've uh, found imported from overseas, the nozzles are often directly underneath the propellers and they rely on the, the air dispersion of the propellers to act as a dispersal for the swath, and we found that to be very uneven and and unreliable and and we want a a real even distribution pattern and something that folks can actually work on if you look at our spray setup between our our ace pump and banjo fittings this is something that folks can work on and modify to suit their needs and we encourage that what size is your spray tank that sets underneath this drone a a key point in how many acres you can do over a day is is how many acres you can do per run which is obviously the, the the payload of the aircraft so We're starting off, This our first entry to the marketplace has a 20-gallon tank, which we think is the minimum tank size you need to do any work, and our products will only be going up and up as time goes on.
0: Where are you seeing this fits? I mean, there's spray planes, there's spray helicopters out there. Where does this fit?
6: Primarily in regions where there may be some urban sprawl, where the airplanes can't go in tight areas. Uh, specifically specialty crops, fruits and vegetables where there's a high spray frequency when you need to get out there and spray these high-value crops every week or every two weeks around around the whole year. Uh, And also out here in in field crops in in Broadacre where there might be wind turbines or lines or, again, even some urban sprawl, tough to get into areas. People are really looking for options like this. Or, Or even their whole fields when aerial application is sometimes hard to come by. All right, I'm sitting down. Well, I'm actually standing up, but what's the price of it? The aircraft and the supercharger and the control station all together is 119000 119000 That's right. Well, you couldn't
0: buy a sizable sprayer of any type for that money. That's right. Uh, unless it pulled behind your tractor. So you're competitive, I think. But what
6: about the expertise to run it? A big takeaway is we've been working with the FAA um, on, on the licensing required, and you do not need a pilot's license or anything like that to spray it. Uh, the job is very different the robot uh, flies itself there's no control sticks for up down left right it's all pre-mapped and pre-programmed and so you need what's called the faa part 107 uh, which is the commercial drone license that any drone pilot of any size needs you also need a class 2 medical which is easier to get than a a cdl medical Um, you also need to pass the uh, what's called the part one thirty seven knowledge and skills test which teaches you about drift and wind shear on the nozzles and other aerial application concerns. Things that and anybody uh, who sprays should know. should know. You need your state application license uh, and also an FAA approved two-week training course with us. Wow. Well what's the interest been? The interest has been phenomenal. We have about five hundred pre-orders and folks who are interested can learn more on our website guardian.ag and we're on there we're accepting uh, pre-orders for this aircraft. Uh, we're, we're asking for a, a fully refundable deposit of $500 to hold your place in the manufacturing line. And orders now are expected delivery is the first quarter of 2024. And again, there's Guardian Agriculture. And your name again, sir? My name is Adam Bricky. I'm the CEO of
0: Guardian Agriculture. Where are you based? We're based in Massachusetts. Well, I'm glad to have you here in the Midwest. <laughs> Thanks. We're glad to be here. Well, folks, I'm still at the Farm Progress show. And uh We have these drones now that are kind of ubiquitous, you know. They're just everywhere. People have them for photography. Uh, You see them in the Field of Dreams game. You have drones that are going out and doing mapping and other things like that. Well, I'm going to go back to the stone age of drones with Stu Ellis, who is a longtime friend of mine, farm broadcaster in past years and present time, but other jobs along with that. And I want you to tell me, Stu, first of all, how you doing? terrific but i'll get better <laughs> well you've always had a good attitude and a great hairline i might add we, we go to the same barbershop. shop we do yes you were putting on a drone show when people were kind of scratching their heads of really what are these how long ago was it it was at the other uh, site of the farm progress
7: show in decatur that's right it was at progress city and it was um, i'll say 10 or 11 years ago I can't really remember the date, uh, but uh, nevertheless, uh, we knew that uh, farmers were starting to get interested in them and that a lot of companies were starting to tell farmers, you need one of these, you can can look at your fields, you can see where weedy spots are, and they might even get really even more useful in the future, so you need to know about these. And uh, I thought, well, what could be better than to put on a drone show Uh, to uh, let farmers see what is on the market, what they will do, what they won't do, if they're hard to operate, if they're easy to operate. And then the FAA says, no, you can't do that. And they were stopped right there. It was kind of stymied because the FAA says, no, you cannot, people cannot fly these unless they have an FAA license, a part 107 of the Federal Aviation Act. And so we, we thought, well, how can we have a drone show if we can't fly them uh, we, we looked
0: at a lot of different ways and I'm smiling here cuz this gets funnier
7: <laughs> one of the things that we found out was that we had some friends uh, who are model airplane club people and they have these little uh, model airplanes they fly all around and and they go a long way and come back and radio control yeah, that's the RC flyer association that, that's right. And these guys are, are really good. They work very closely with the FAA. The FAA says, fine, you go right ahead, you can fly these. Well, how are these little radio-controlled airplanes different than a radio-controlled drone? They Really, other than spelling, there's not a whole lot of difference in them. <laughs>
0: Got And the FAA said, okay, go ahead, as long as you're under the auspices of that association. We, we had to have, yeah, we had to have some people who were officers in the local
7: club be there and say, yeah, you know, we've got a lot of members who are starting to fly these drones. And sure, we'll come and we'll, we'll authorize this. And, um, and so we had the drone makers come and fly their drones. And the FAA got wind of it, and they called the tower in Decatur at the Decatur Airport. They said, they said, do you know what's going on there, just a couple miles from you? And, the, and we had talked with the tower boss several times to, to tell him what we were doing. And he said, he said, yeah, I know what's going on. they said, is it safe? And he said, yeah, it's safe. They said,
0: okay, and hung up. Well, you had people that came in there from organizations that had great plans for the future of drones. Are any of those people that you know of still around, or did the industry just evolve away from them?
7: Well, there were some, there were some people who had great ideas, and there are. I think there's some that are still making them. One that we didn't have but has really dominated the world is DJI, which is from China. And we didn't have anybody from China come and fly their drone. Uh, but a lot of uh, technology, I think, comes from what they have. And, uh, uh, but there's really a lot of the names, if I could scratch way back in my memory bank and come up with any, and there are not many I can come up with, I don't think I would see them really anywhere today.
0: There was a French company that had a drone that apparently was at the top of the group at the time, and it was not a quadcopter. It would fly major distances.
7: That's right. It w- it looked like a, f- a, f- a flying wing. It had two wings and a little bit of a body, and it and it flew very well. and And in, in in essence, you threw it into the air like a boomerang, and it would level out itself and fly all around. And it was a French company, and uh, and I can't recall the name, but I think they are still around, as I've seen some ads
0: for them, and I think they're advancing a little bit, but. Uh, Stu Ellis who started all this I guess we can give you credit for popularizing it Um, are you amazed at how much drones are integrated into society today
7: Oh very much so And, and here there right now is a drone that you can get into not a little thing you hold in your hand but you can sit down in it you can turn it on and it will lift off the ground and the pilot says he even though he is an acrobatic aerobatic pilot he said he was expecting to be jerked, and he says it took off just like Aladdin on his magic carpet. And, and he said, nobody's ever asked me what the how that was. And he says, thank you for asking, because I've been waiting to tell people exactly what it felt like. And, and it, it just lifts off very smoothly. You can use it to look at he holes in your, in your crop to figure out, well, is this done by deer or coons or whatever? Uh, or go chase some cattle back uh, back home to the ranch, uh, and so it's a cheap helicopter. It, it, well, it's not cheap, but it's uh, it's one hundred and fifty thousand. But it's a uh, it's a a one man uh, uh, six prop helicopter.
0: Yes, well, I did another interview today that was with a young man who was the founder of a company out of Massachusetts, and it is a drone that has a quadcopter look to it, but each of the uh, props is about uh 50 inches or so in uh, in length and it'll carry a 20 gallon spray tank. Electronics are very similar to the other drones. It'll fly terrain, uh it'll do other things and there is no joystick for it at all. You just program it and launch it. But it actually has skids. It looks like it weighs loaded probably maybe uh 300 pounds something like that and it'll quick charge the battery that's right and
7: we're we're seeing a lot of uh, those that are being picked up by retail uh, ag companies that spray spray uh, fungicides herbicides spread fertilizer for you because they can spot spray and I think a lot of farmers may get interested and two or three farmers go together and buy one jointly and uh, because you're not going to have a lot of spot spring on your farm probably most of the time but if you own several farmers owned it why well, they could probably afford it and use it efficiently
0: I noticed though that the amount of training and licensing you have to have to fly this drone uh, is pretty serious it's just it's not a private pilot's license but you have to have two leaks of instruction with them you have to have a class three medical and uh, you have to have all the certifications of any commercial applicator to fly it. right and uh, and so there's the
7: regulations that are being uh, applied to the industry to make sure that there is some safety involved because I don't think anybody wants to to um, uh, to get one dropped on their home or dropped on them or something and out of the air and and uh, there's so there needs to be some safety and you don't want to don't want a pilot one of these uh, uh, having a heart attack in the middle and letting his drone fly off into the sunset
0: uh, oh, oh. Hopefully it would just return when the battery went low. Well, Stu Ellis, it's always a joy to talk to you, but every time I see drones, I think of you because they were literally grounded until the FAA finally said, okay, we'll see if this makes sense, and then finally they agreed that it would, and the rest is history.
7: I think we pushed the envelope that day. That may have been a historical day because there's a lot of people that remember it and have reminded me of it. And I had kind of gone out of my memory and my chemo brain is losing a lot right now. But uh, I think a lot of people will say that that was a watershed day in the life of uh, drones in
0: agriculture. I remember a spray plane pilot who flew through your show and uh, we were never sure why he did. One of the stories I got afterwards was that he said, well, I wanted to see if I could spot them if one might be up in a field that I'm trying to spray at 130 miles an hour and swat it you know, on the windshield. And the other one was, he just wanted to tell you to keep the damn things on the ground. And I think he suffered a little bit because the
7: FAA caught up with him for what he was doing, was strafing a crowd a little too near where a whole bunch of people were gathered. <laughs> Thank you, Stu. Thank you, Ken. Just delight to talk.
0: Thanks for listening to Better Than Nothing. I hope you stayed awake for most of it and liked what you heard. If you'd like to tell me your thoughts or relate your memories, send it to kenroot at gmail.com. We'll try to put out one of these every week, and you can sign up with your podcast service to be reminded when the next one's available. As I now turn 73 years old, I've decided to have two kinds of days, good ones and great ones. See you next week for another episode of Better Than Nothing.